Welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. What's it like to write fiction during a pandemic? And we know what lockdown has meant for landlords and pub goers, but how have Christians experienced it? Talking to me today is the author of the new novel, Like Perpetual, Francis Spufford. Welcome to The Bunker, Francis. Hi. Thanks, Ros. Where have you been spending the pandemic? Uh, indoors, mostly. Um, my my wife works in Ely Cathedral and we live in a house just next to it. So I am in one of the luckier and prettier, nicer nicer places to, to, to hunker down in. But um, but I miss I miss London where I used to commute to work and um, and I miss cafes where I used to write for preference. Um, so, so I'm in a it's, a, it's a velvet cage, but it's a bit of a cage. This is your second novel, but it's by no means your first book. You've written in many different genres, essays, memoir, history, polemic even. In 2010, you published Red Plenty, which is a sort of fusion of history and fiction about Soviet scientists. And then two years later, you wrote Unapologetic, which was a furious riposte to the new atheist movement of Richmond Richard Dawkins. And then in 2016, Golden Hill was published, and that's a novel a lot of listeners may have heard of. It's a fantastic novel about the early days of New York, and it won a number of prizes. So the premise of Light Perpetual, your new novel, is very simple. Five kids are killed in a South London shop by a V2 rocket in 1944, and then they aren't. We read about the explosion and then bag the reprieve and they're having a singing class at primary school and we revisit them every decade or so until 2009. I was really struck by your description of the explosion, which is really startling and detailed. How was that to, to write? Did you have to do a lot of research for it? Uh, quite a bit, yes, because because... Oddly, I, I'm not totally au fait with the details of World War II high explosives and did, did really have to look into that. Um, I wanted, though, to, to, to get time working at a kind of magnification. It doesn't usually, either in fiction or in, or in human experiences, explosions happen really fast and yet they're, they are real events and they have in this case, you know, consequences on human lives, which lasted the decades. So the book begins with an explosion which is slowed right down. So it kind of it goes one ten thousandth of a second at a time. We're used to dealing with with a kind of human now, which lasts about three or four seconds, I think um, psychologists say. Um, and this is this is such a minute fraction of an ordinary now that it was very odd and kind of kind of estranging to be thinking in these terms. We talk a lot about the Blitz in Britain, even more so in the last year. And it's a, it's a reference point almost in British history. But how much do we really know about it, do you think, based on what you found out about it since you start writing, started writing the book? I think the mythology of the Blitz is is immensely available. And you know, there are people who would argue that, that Britain has given itself a slightly sickly overdose of blitz nostalgia and that we are a bit too keen as a culture on patting ourselves on the back for virtue a very long time ago. Um, I think the reality of the blitz is much further away in time and much harder for, for us us contemporary people to get our to get our heads around. Um, 
it's the the dailiness and ordinariness of it that that leaps out at me from the descriptions. The way that having discovered at six o'clock in the morning that 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 they'd survived the night, people got up, dusted themselves down, and went to work for another day. And the buses continued to run through a London where buildings were randomly turning into piles of rubble, many with many with corpses underneath. And I think the everyday and continual experience of danger is very, very hard for us to imagine now. It doesn't really correspond to to anything in our present day experience. So these characters' lives, these five characters, aren't particularly remarkable, are they? Um, except in the sense that every single life, I think, is remarkable if you look at it if you look at it close up. Um, I, I didn't want to I didn't want to write a book full of exceptional people doing exceptional things. And I wanted to to talk about the the stuff that is much more widely shared, um, and because these these five kids don't die after all, they get to experience the extraordinary changes that the city of London has gone through. And I wanted to show, I wanted to show the kind of explosion of ordinary possibility that happened when when kind of social deference went away and the economy changed and and who lived in London changed and jobs that had you know lasted for generations suddenly melted away and other things that had never existed before came along um i i was very influenced by having read oddly keith richards wonderful autobiography it's still wonderful even though it was ghosted called life um which has got these marvelous photographs in it which start off with him as a kind of little boy in black and white wearing knee-length shorts and eating spam sandwiches in this kind of post-war world of austerity and then suddenly there he is wearing kind of gold lame frogged jackets um and playing the guitar in las vegas and you think gosh that's one lifetime one transition in the 1960s between a kind of black and white world and a kind of intensely colored rock and roll world and things like that were happening in a less starry way to kind of hundreds of thousands of other people. One of the things you do in your work is to blur history and fiction and you've pointed out that religion does this quite freely and unashamedly and we're now living through an experience with the pandemic that's defined for us in very abstract and numerical terms. So this is a virus that we can't see. These are deaths that, for the most part, we don't see. They're ritually counted every day. We have a figure, but they happen and tend to happen in hospitals and care homes. This is not like a pandemic that we, of the kind we might have known before, where we see people die. A lot is shut off from public view. Do you think there has been a failure of imagination during this pandemic? Yes, but I think it's an I think it's an incredibly um, natural failure of imagination. I think I think it's difficult enough at the best of times entering into other people's experience when it's when it's remote from us, and that the numerical filter has a weirdly but inevitably um, normalising effect. I've I've caught myself going, oh, only four hundred and forty five deaths today. As if I, I, you know, somehow got quite used to the idea that an entire small village would die daily, um, and the, the remedy for that is as uncomfortable as it as it always is. It's a it's a kind of effort of imaginative will against the grain to to try to 
to push through the the kind of the natural veils and and filters represented by the numbers and by our own distance from the hospitals where people are dying and just to try to believe it deep down if it's happened to you or if it's happened to people nearer you then then you have a you have a natural way in but otherwise in a way i think you're well you're applying the skills you'd use as a as a reader of fiction you are you are doing that difficult but but vital task of pushing yourself out of the bounds of of your own life into lives structured on completely different footings lives where as george eliot said in middlemarch um the lights and shadows always fall with a certain difference it's very difficult but it's it's kind of absolutely absolutely essential will it be the job of the novelist eventually do you think to have chronicled this pandemic yes um but also of the filmmaker and the poet and of anyone who can kind of deploy those 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 kind of technologies of invention that let us do viewpoints which aren't our own singular viewpoint anything which which bursts open the little singular world we live in and lets us live in a wider one um you know as a as a religious person i'd like to think that that there are ways you can pray your way a little bit towards towards sympathy too but that doesn't come easily either Light Perpetual is mostly set in Bexford, which is an imaginary South London suburb, but I had no difficulty imagining it. I've been to that suburb many, many times. What was it like writing a book about a city you could no longer visit? Well, it had this strange kind of elegy quality, which I hadn't intended it to have at all at the beginning. I, 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 I mean, yeah, Bexford is a remix of, of various South London boroughs I have known, which lets me do all of the most characteristic south londony things but without the the you know the responsibility of having to be faithful to any to any one of them um i certainly didn't mean for it to have this kind of quality quality of elegy to it i thought i was trying to record normality with as kind of sensitive a piece of photographic paper as i as i could but but as i finished it and it suddenly became impossible for people to travel on crowded tubes or catch buses or sit in cafes or do any of those things which are the kind of you know the small change of of normality i realized that i'd been i'd been chronicling not the present city but something which had been abruptly and bizarrely thrown into thrown into the past but but with any luck this is like a temporary, please, temporary eclipse of, of London. And, and people will be sitting in cafes and restaurants and riding on tubes and, and doing all that stuff again. And then people will just regard this as the bizarre glitch of 2020 to one. The Guardian ran an article last week and it was called Writer's Block Down. It was illustrated by a picture of a, a dishwasher glowing in the dark. <laughs> malevolent way and it was about the way in which various novelists explained how difficult it has been to write over the past year has that been your experience aside from the difficulty of evoking a place that you can't go to has it been difficult to write full stop well I have to confess that I'd, I'd actually more or less finished before the first lockdown began so so the reason why there was that kind of elegiac thing going on with my book is that the the shutter descended on the city more or less as the shutter descended on my last paragraph um, after that though 
After that, I found it really disconcerting not having a kind of big task anymore. And I rather regretted I'd finished because I found concentration almost impossible for for several months. And I, like everybody else, I was fervently doom scrolling and my attention was flittering madly around the room rather than settling on, on any one thing. I don't think kind of radical uncertainty about your kind of individual and collective future is very good for concentration. Um, and it took me, I, I haven't I haven't sat up in the middle of the night gazing at the lights on the dishwasher, um, but there have been various other bits of, of domestic malevolence where I just think kind of, I would really like to go out now. I would really, really, really like to go out now. No disrespect to my family, but this is just not natural. In yeah. Apologetic, which is your book about Christianity, you tried to explain, among lots of other things, how it was possible to believe in a God without proof of their existence. But you described spiritual experiences in common that you'd had in churches and in Light Perpetual too. One of the characters finds a great deal of solace listening to a choir and being part of an evangelical church. And he falls in love with a woman who's deeply involved in it. And as you mentioned earlier, your wife is an Anglican priest at Ely Cathedral. How have Christians experience this pandemic i know you can't speak for uh, all christians by any means but it's a viewpoint we don't often hear and i'm particularly interested in it because we hear about places reopening you know commercial places and pubs and restaurants people don't talk much about churches but what has it been like um partly the same as for everybody else but with some kind of with some specialized bits to it um christianity has its has its ascetic elements but it's also an intensely bodily religion um we are supposed to get together and 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 kind of do it together and <laughs> we are supposed to believe that our closest access to the presence of god involves a mouthful of bread and a sip of wine um and none of those things have been possible except kind of very intermittently and with an extraordinary amount of ppe and the church understandably my church the church of england understandably has taken the view that that we we really wouldn't be 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 helping out our congregations very much if we heroically um, infected each other so we've erred on the side of caution sometimes to the extent of frustrating people a lot um, I mean there are, there is a strong case for saying that actual spiritual spiritual consolation and sustenance is essential work of a kind but it's it's and it's it's being done but it's all being delivered online and a service on on zoom is a is a strangely disembodied and kind of almost kind of desiccated thing compared to compared to a service in in person um and it reminds you how much usually it isn't just a matter of kind of sight and ideas but a sort of but a whole body experience um i miss other christians part of the reason i can't speak for them is that you know there they aren't except as a, as a gallery of little heads on screen um and you know there are there are there are other elements to it to it too. I mean, there are frustrated Christians all over the country who have been doing wonders in bits of kind of vocational ministry. Um, hospital chaplains have not stopped doing doing their thing. Christians have been heavily involved in kind of food banks and phone trees and all of those things that keep particularly the, the kind of the isolated old feeling that they haven't lost the whole of the rest of the world. Um, 
but you know we're we're called to be brave and self-sacrificing and it's it it makes you stumble to think actually bravery and self-sacrifice might just involve sitting still at the moment because the the impetus is to is to kind of go out and help um i was sick and you visited me says jesus in the gospels and and you know you're supposed to do that i was sick and you stayed at a very safe distance wearing several layers of um, masking and ppe is not the original text here um um, but it may nevertheless have been the right thing to do Mm. um it's also being financially catastrophic for the church Um, our income has gone through the floor um the financial viability of the institution is in question and the church that comes out of the other end of this is going to be smaller and wobblier than 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 the church that that went in. Um, oh, socially distanced Christmas. Yes, Not I was going to ask you Christmas. about that because that was remarkable, no. wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and socially distanced Easter with its socially distanced resurrection, socially distanced joy. Not quite the same, really. No. Um, it would be very, very good to get back the chance for, for kind of love, bravery, faith, hope and charity to mean the things they usually mean rather than having to to be subjected to a whole series of protocols about infection. Yes. I went to a socially distanced uh, carol service when it was still allowed on Christmas Eve mm-hmm. and it was very odd. And I knew exactly how the carol service proceeded. It was a, a crib service uh, because I'd been several times before each year. And this year, Mary and Joseph, rather than embracing um, with a great deal of enthusiasm, fist uh, no, they didn't fist bump. They elbow oh, bumped. And of course, they did. <laughs> it was it was very poignant and very sad. It was also very nice just to see anyone touching anyone else at all, to be honest. But um, yeah. very strange too. I mean, was it uh, because so much of it also is about singing, and that's something that you is is particularly banned in this pandemic, isn't it? Because we know that singing is particularly mm. dangerous, and I found that especially hard losing any kind of choral experience. Oh, yeah. Even, even in a kind of volume of enclosed space as large as a cathedral, you really can't let several hundred people sing at the same time. So so Ely Cathedral had lots of carol services to make up for the fact that all the seats had to be two metres plus apart. Um, but they all consisted of people quietly and silently listening to choirs. Silent bloody night indeed. Um <laughs> Um, with one exception, they let us gather in a socially distanced way out on the lawn outside the cathedral. And the relief in people's voices when they could actually sing, Oh, come all ye faithful, was 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 incredible. You end like perpetual with an infinity symbol. I had to look that up because I didn't know that it was an infinity symbol. I thought it was an eight uh, on its side. I had to I had to ch- search for it online. Which was quite hard. I am more of a nerd than you are. (laughs) Yes. Tell us what it signifies in the in the context of the novel and what it what it why you chose to end it that way. Well, the novel has the novel has been structured all the way through as T plus a certain number of years. T being the moment when the V two goes off or doesn't. And by the time you've got to the end, all these children who I have saved with the ambiguous magic wand of fiction are dead anyway because they 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 got to grow old and and die. So there needed to be a T plus plus something limitless for the whole of the the whole of the rest of of the future. Um, but I've pitched it, I hope, with with enough perfect ambiguity so that it can gesture towards death or towards resurrection depending on what you what you bring to the book the t plus infinity section only says the words come dust 
which is either the inevitable arrival of death um, or or the rousing up of dust in the resurrection. But but the the, the book leaves you alone to decide which you'd rather. And that is probably a good place to wrap up. Are you working on your next project now? Uh, will it be another novel? Uh, it will be another novel, and I am because I finally managed to 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 crack the problem of COVID concentration. Um, but it's set as far away as possible because um, in an imaginary city which never existed by the banks of the Mississippi, largely populated by Native Americans, um, because this lets me do as much mental travelling as I possibly can while sitting at a desk in Ely. Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Light Perpetual is out now, published by Faber. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Search Bunker Patreon. We'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor and the producer was Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich and audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.